Hello, welcome to Pod Songs with me, Jack Stafford, where I interview inspirational people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today, I'm speaking with a mountaineer and world record holder who's led expeditions to Everest, the North Pole, and the South Pole. He's also a successful businessman who created the first commercial airline in Antarctica, as well as multiple multi-million dollar businesses. If that wasn't enough, he also went on to launch a global youth empowerment project and produced a primetime TV documentary about it. After journeying around the world, he's journeyed within and has had incredible spiritual experiences with enlightened masters. He taught meditation to monks in India and around the world. He lives in constant bliss, joy, love and creativity. It sounds like I'm bigging him up too much, but this episode lives up to it. Please welcome... Martine Williams. Yeah, you look like you're in a beautiful soundproof room. I am. I am in a. I am in a closet that I have oh. covered covered with foam, expressly for the, yeah. this purpose. Oh. Well, your voice sounds great. Or the- thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> So, well, the reason we're getting together is because I, I spoke to your, I, I saw your wife on this, this King Yoga chat and she was in this live session. She was telling these incredible stories. So, and everyone else in the group wanted to hear more about it. And, but the session ended and I was thinking, I really want to hear more about it. And, I, and I, having this podcast is like a superpower. It's like having a city. So anything I want to know about I just can reach out to people and have have conversations, learn more about it. And she said to me, I know somebody even more interesting than me, my husband, Martine. Mm-hmm. So he, she, you, we've been in touch by email and yes, yeah, it's, it's an incredible story you have. So I can't wait to hear all about it, you know? Okay, great. Well, where do you want to start? Do you have some questions you want to start with or what's your thinking? Well. I just put my podcasts into categories because I interview so many different people, but you're going to be quite difficult to put into a category because you, you've got this this wild adventure side, and then this, shall we say, spiritual yoga service side. So maybe it's better to start with the adventure side because that's where you is that was that more where your life started? Is that how you? Were? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's where yeah it started. In or I guess life as an adventure is the would be an overall theme, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I got, I got to write a song about this. So if we could, if we could have an overall theme, that would be great. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, actually, life as an adventure is a is a great topic to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. You've had some some crazy adventures. Just, but it's better to start. Just tell me whatever comes into your head. Yeah. Okay. So then, I guess if you look at life from the perspective of an adventure. For some reason, I think curiosity has been a major driver for my, my whole life. And so if you look at the series of adventures that I went on, often it was about exploring what's possible next. So at an early age, I was born in Liverpool and started you know, heading off into nature at an early age and, and started rock climbing at 14. And so it, I've often been propelled by, oh, what's, you know, what does it look like around the corner? What's when the view from the top of the mountain reveals another mountain range? Oh, well, let's, let's go over there. You lost or, your, you lost, you lost your accent on one of the climbs. 
That's right. Well, actually, it's a bit of a story there. My first job, so I went to university in Wales, went, you know, did lots of rock climbing there, got a job as a teacher in the Yukon in a little, in a little village. 200 native people who lived on the land, who lived in log cabins. They hold their own water. They live, they cooked up wood, wood stoves, no electricity in the building. So I'm in this little school there and the kids come in the classroom. I'm teaching grades one to six and they don't understand me. And literally. Until you're one of the Beatles. Yeah. Well, they didn't, their, their realm was so small. They didn't even know who the Beatles were. Oh, wow. <laughs> their, their, sort of, their world was, was just this little village and nature and trapping and, and eating moose meat and stuff like that. Right. So, so definitely had to shift there pretty rapidly. So, so from, from there, I'd already been uh, rock climbing and exploring. I'd been to, you know, I'd been to South America, you know, climbing, you know, unclimbed peaks in South America, things like that. And so even as a teacher, I ended up in, in, so in that little village, I learned a whole pile of skills, you know, from the, from the native people. So I learned about, you know, trapping and dog mushing and, and living and going out at minus 50. So even that, as a, as a kid from, from Liverpool, the, the native people there, they were, the kids were playing soccer at, at, at minus 40 in just running shoes, jean jackets, no mitts, no hats. They just, they, they just adapted. Right. And so, so that for me, that I got a whole look into another culture being there, people who were, who were strongly connected with the land had all these sorts of uh, family taboos, just a whole way of looking at the world totally different to the way I'd grown up. And that gave me perspectives on, oh, wow, we each through, see the world through a very different lens. That was your first job out of university? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a, that's not your typical career path, is it? You were, you were <laughs> on, I want to have an adventure. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, there was an anthropologist in that community. So he gave me insights into, for instance, so in the first few days, many of the girls would not speak, even speak to me, right? And so he explained that for them, it was, they'd been brought up where it was taboo for a young girl to speak with a male she did not know who was not a relative. And so literally I was breaking, or you know, the school system was breaking the, the societal structure by even being in the community, you know? And so there's all these adjustments going on. So, so I guess that that perspective of seeing the world through through different eyes and then seeing possibility through different eyes has been a driver for me. So almost like a philosophical driver for me. Sort of <laughs> but then also my just love of adventure, having having taught in Landall Village, I then started being offered my adventure side got was offered various guiding in the Yukon and then from there started various guiding businesses that led me, you know, to to guide and do adventures around the world, you know? So it was always this, oh, well, here's a neat opportunity. Let's pursue this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Mr. 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 Outdoors, man, you'd, if you were a few years later, you'd have a TV series about you or something like that. Yeah, probably, yeah. Because uh, I guess the, the beauty of it was, though, that at that particular time and place, it was very difficult to make a living. That would be, so I started in my community in 69, so taught that for a couple of years, then started guiding in the early 70s. So at that point, you know, in fact, it was so the, the transformation from the outdoor world, if you look at the transformation in the outdoor world over the, over the, those years, my first inspiration at say 16, I went to the Alps and, and, and saw mountain guides and I said to my dad, I want to become a mountain guide. He said, well, it's impossible. You grow up in the family. At that point in time, guides 
were born into the, their fathers are mountain guides. It was just like carpenters and other professions passed on from father to son, right? Whereas yeah. now it's the whole situation has changed and now anybody with a desire can can pursue a career, those sorts of careers, right? So massive shifts in in these big industries, you know? And see, I, I saw you climbed Everest and what what are the hardest climbs you've ever done? So I guess climbs sticking on memories for various reasons, right? <laughs> and so one of them that particularly stands out was uh, a winter ascent, which is in the, the winters are pretty cold. So it was like minus 30, minus 40. We're climbing a peak called, an unclimbed peak called Mount Ulu. And we got on the mountain and a big storm came in, wrecked, wrecked our tents. Our tents started to disintegrate. So we had to, to build an igloo and there was five of us. So we built this mountain. In the storm, we built this massive five-person igloo, got inside, and then we made a bunch of, of, of errors. And so started heading, you know, the classic, now in reflection, it's a classic Everest story. We hear all these stories about people, you know, having problems on Everest late in the day. And ours was the same thing, but many years earlier, and we hadn't learned, yet learned. <laughs> so we ended up going for the summit and getting to the summit of this peak at like five o'clock. It was getting dark at six. And so we turned around and coming down super sleep slopes in the dark. At one point, we were roped up and one of the one of our team members, I was leading the way. One of the team members lost balance, uh, zoomed off, hit me, knocked me over a cliff. We were on a rope though. So fortunately, I just fell 15, 20 feet hit the end of the rope, stopped, and was able to climb off the cliff. And then, so we got around that obstacle. And then when we finally got into the tent, it was now 24 hours since we'd started. We got into the tent like at eight o'clock in the morning, just so it was getting light. And one of the team members pulled off his boots and his feet were literally frozen solid. You know, so, so then we had this whole thing of just what to do you know, with, his, with his feet. And again, in the evolution of of outdoors, we now know the best treatment for, for that. It's, it's pretty standard practice, but at that point it wasn't. And so we were just, oh, wow, here we are. Let's have some tea. Let's try and warm them up. And so I, you know, I put them on my chest for a while. We, we, we put them on other people's chest to try and thaw them out. And then we were so exhausted. We fell asleep. And when he woke up, he was in agony. And what is the, what is the best uh, practice to do? It's, it's called rapid rewarming. So you would warm, ideally we would have warmed up water to, to hot skin temperature and then, and then put his feet on. We didn't have a bucket for his feet, obviously, but we, we could have uh, warmed them up much faster than we did. And that would have saved, that possibly might've saved them, you know, but with our, our slower rewarming, it ended up in with him losing his toes, you know? Wow. So that was one of the, one of the more epic climbs, you know? Yeah. Wow, so, so many stories, doing it for, doing it for guiding for so many years. I'll just tell you one more, and sort of, sort of my train, you know, my sort of train of thought goes to another story. And this was a peak in Karsten, in, in Indonesia. It's the highest peak in Australasia. You know, so if you want to do the seven summits, you, you go to this peak in Australasia, which is called Karsten's Pyramid. And it's, it's, it's in Indonesia, it's very remote, it's 17,000 feet. And it's the Alpine area, there is about 14,000. It's, and then through a 3,000 foot rock climb. So we went there with a group and it was very difficult to get permission. And I think we were the only, maybe the only party that year to get permission. And so we get to the base of the mountain and a big snowstorm comes in and it's actually normally a rock climb. And the weather there is, it's tropical. So the weather there is afternoon 
storm, morning clear, right? And so the whole idea is start early in the morning, climb as fast as you can, get to the summit, and and then get down again in in poor weather. But now we're on the now we're at the base of the mountain, and it snows for three days. We're looking at two feet of snow in the tents and stuff like this, right? And so we go to the base of the of the it's a three thousand foot rock climb. So we go to the base of the of the rock and look and say it's impossible. There's no way we're going to do it. But then one of the one of the, the group there was was a doctor who had to get back to to Germany to to actually Switzerland to to help his his clients. And so he said, please, 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 can we go and look? And so there were two of us who were the leaders, myself and buddy of mine, Pat Morrow. And we said, well, there's really no way, but for you, we'll go and look, right? And so we headed off there and we started super early in the morning and we got on the rock and we're brushing the snow, the snow all over the place. We're trying to find the holes. And, but, you know, we get up the first hundred feet and then, oh, wow, we've, we've got up a little way. Let's go a bit further. So, so that day was this magical day of just, oh, we got a bit higher. Oh, we got a bit higher. Oh, wow. Look, we can get over there. Just this exploration as we, as we get higher and higher till eventually by one o'clock where, hey, we're, we find, we actually did it. So. In, in all my memories of expeditions, that one really stands out because it was just so, so, you know, so improbable and so unexplored and so, I guess, very much in the moment of exhilaration of just, oh, wow, what's next? What's next? What's next? So those seven summits are the, are the most famous ones in the world or what? That, no, they're the highest peaks on each continent. Okay. So we got seven continents and seven summits. So Everest would be one. And then Akakaga in South America, McKinley in North America, Mont Blanc. And you've done them all? No, actually, I've done three or four of them. It's my my pursuit of goals isn't isn't always sort of logical. Many people set out to do the seven summits, but it hasn't been a goal of mine. I've just done them accidentally uh-huh. through through just sort of other things happening. But is it? It's incredibly dangerous. Is there ever a time you've had experience and you say, "Listen, this I shouldn't be doing this. This is I should be at home in bed." Certainly, there's times when this is. Yeah, we need to get out of here, you know, whether it's avalanche conditions or bad weather, or there's a bunch of conditions where we say that and just like, oh, let's turn around or holy smoke, yeah, we pushed it too far, you know? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Because I read- ideally, we'd, ideally we train though for the spots where we, where we have options. So we're, so we're, we often end up in those situations, but then often we've trained enough to know, okay, I do have three options here. Because I, yeah. I remember you said in one video that in one year, five of your friends died and they were super trained guides. They knew everything. Mm-hmm. That's right, yes. And actually that did that did hit me. And so that was, it really stopped and made me, you know, rethink what I'm doing, you know? Mm. Yeah. And it was definitely, I couldn't quite, you know, as you, as, as you described it, that was the case. These people were all top of the field and had been doing either guiding or leading for 20, 30 years, and all of a sudden five of them all each gone a bizarre accident, each one an unusual accident. So, so I guess the, the margins of error or the, I guess when you're pushing the odds, the odds sort of roll against you sometimes. Yeah. 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 I saw it in the video where you talk about this pole to pole adventure where you, mm-hmm. where you got ordinary people or young people to do an adventure that you thought you'd realize had never been done. Yeah, so that was was a bit of a backstory of that one too. So having done these various expeditions, this ties into the more sort of spiritual aspect of things. I was then asking sort of, okay, well, what's next for me? I'm feeling really good about my life so far, and I've done all these expeditions. What's next? 
And so one night I was, I had a dream and I was on a train and the train was being um, attacked by soldiers. And at first I, I kept, I felt fear and and, but then all of a sudden the fear subsided. Bizarrely, I stopped the train and got off and went to the soldiers and spoke to them and said, you don't have to be controlled this way. You can go home. It's almost like the classic guns to plowshares type concept. Mm-hmm. But it literally unfolded that way in this dream for me, right? And so, oh, wow, that's a pretty neat dream. So I, in the morning, I was explaining the dream and all of a sudden this idea came up of, wow, a journey that had never been done before was from the North Pole to the South Pole under human power. So people had been to the North Pole. It was probably about, at that time, probably about 50, 60, 80 people had been to the North Pole, about 30 people, or 20 or 30 had been to the South Pole overland, but nobody had gone, you know, from one to the other under human power, right? And so, but I realized, wow, I don't have to go to my explorer buddies to do this. Each journey and the journey in between could be done by anybody as long as they have a burning, a burning passion, right? Mm-hmm. And so my whole idea was, let me find young people around the world who have a burning passion for, for global issues, and let's do this journey, because we're coming up to a new millennium. And I was also interested in the whole idea of what does, what, what does a millennium mean? What does it mean for humanity? And so and I realized that the South Pole is the first person in the world to enter the new millennium, because you're standing on the international dateline and the sun is above the horizon, right? And so you're the first people in the world to see the sun for a new millennium. So I thought, again, this is grandiose ideas. So how would it be if young people from around the world were all there having journeyed and explored their potential and along the way they gather promises of action for the new millennium from young people? So, so we're there, we greet the new millennium with ideally millions of promises of action for for a brighter millennium, right? For uh, a better millennium. That's a right? big idea. And so, yeah, big idea. <laughs> so this idea came. So then I started, okay, well, let me just, let me plow at it, right? And so I raised some fun, some money. I started pulling a team together. And then the money the money dried up. I spent it all flying to, come to meet potential sponsors and things like this. And so at one point, because I worked on it for about two years, at one point it looked like the whole project was dead. And I was, at that point in time, I'd, I was living in Santa Fe and moved my family to a small community in Canada where we could train the young people, like a snow, a cross-country ski community, basically, right? So I was in this little cross-country ski community in Canada, and I was in a men's group, and so I went to the men's group and said, look, they've been following my saga. We'd have we'd had GM on the line, General Motors for car sponsorship. We'd had Ford on the line. We'd had a bunch of big companies, and then they all came back to me and said, no, no, no. So I went to this men's group and said, look, the thing's, the thing's dead. They said to me, well, how do you feel? I said, well, I feel sad. Well, just go for it. Feel sad. So I just rolled around on the floor for a few minutes. And then I thought, well, I've just done the best I can. Put everything into it. I've just exhausted all possibilities. I just, I feel good about trying, right? So a day later, I get a phone call out of blue from Korea, from a TV company saying, we'd like to sponsor your project. So... So they ended up sponsoring, so they ended up pulling the whole team together and finding these young people from, you know, eight different countries. And How did you find um, the beep, young people? So in Canada, so in Canada, what we did, we advertised and we had oh, 800 or so applications. And then I selected the best 20. We brought the best 20 together in this little community, little village, a hundred mile house. And 
for four days and said, okay, you're here to select one of you and we're going to sort of run you ragged, exhaust you, <laughs> drive yeah. you to the ground. <laughs> and then you guys, you, 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 cause it was girls, it was a mixed team. It was 10 boys, 10 uh, females. You get to select who, who you want to go. Right. So I brought in a couple of my, my sort of really expert outdoor buddies who are super guides, et cetera, et cetera, as the, so to run this team. And so we, for, for four days, we, you had them up at two o'clock in the morning, tromping through swamps and just all these wild things. And it's not not really competitive. And then over the four days, the team became more and more collaborative. So by in the fourth day, when we said to them, okay, now you get to choose, about four of them immediately said, I see somebody better than me in this team. So I want to withdraw my name. I don't even want to be considered because I see other people here. And so the... So I got together with the people organizing and said, okay, who do we think is going to win, right? And so we select a person who was on the Prime Ministers of Canada Advisory Board on the Environment, had got a PhD, very competent young young person. And and then we put it to a vote amongst the, the rest of them and had a little you know, a process for voting. And the, the, team, the young people ended up selecting the one person who had not been to university the one, the, the person who was had worked with actually Aboriginal native children, and had had been at the back of the line most of the time, looking after the people who were struggling, and so it was interesting. Their choice was so different. It was very much a heartfelt choice versus a logical choice. So these, so given all our life experience and smarts, we'd chosen one one person, and the young people, in fact, from my perspective, actually came up with a better choice. And in the end, this person did that was, person in the end? was really hard fought and considered. And they were a, a great asset to the team yeah. for the whole trip? Or? That's right. Yeah, they became actually, they became one of the leaders during the whole trip. Wow. Yeah. And for the other countries, how did you how did you select? So you had one person from from each continent? From Canada. That's, yeah, so I went sort of, I looked for for countries that had influence in the world, thinking, okay, we this, is a, this journey will probably be followed by the media. So how do we have media in big countries follow us. Uh-huh. So, so Japan, Korea, Argentina, the UK, but the UK person unfortunately got injured just before the trip, South Africa. So the South Africa one was interesting in that we went to a group in South Africa to help us organize. And so, and the person organizing was black from South Africa. And so he called me up and said, we finally, we selected a candidate and they told me, and I said, and they said, he's white. I said, what? <laughs> we wanted, we wanted a black representative. And he said, well, in, you know, South Africa is now, we just wanted to select the best person and the best person happened to be white. So we're sending a white person. So, but it was difficult at times explaining when we're traveling through the States, uh, people would say as well, how come the South African is, is white. <laughs> so we'd have to explain the whole backstory, right, of how we ended up with, with a white South African. And so did they have these camps in every country to this kind of SAS intensive training to choose the best person? In some countries, yeah. In some countries, we just ran out of time and money. And mm. so I just contact explore, contacted explore friends and said, who have you got? Who, who fits this bill? And then, well, I've seen the documentary, so I know, but how did the trip go? Yeah, we had all sorts of wild, wild adventures. And so I guess, you know, for me, the things that, that stand out were 
well, one, how the team came together, blew up, came together, blew up, so the sort of the wildness of young people of that age and how they how they respond to different situations. But and so I guess one of the summaries there would be that when the team blew up, often what brought them back together was understanding. Well, in fact, we had one session that was an amazing session where it was actually t- took place in Santa Fe when the team was at a really low point. And so we gathered them up and said, okay, let's do an exercise where you get together with, with one of the other team members and run through what you like and what you don't like. So just start off with what you don't like. I don't like this about you. I don't like that about you. I don't like this about you. I don't like that about you. And just be candid, right? So brutal honesty. And then just start on the things. And everybody was very hesitant to do this, but they got into it. And what happened was, what I saw happening is that the revealing of the things we don't like, they were all sort of little insubstantial things in the big context, which is, I don't like the way you... You you slurp your food, right? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't like how you you sort of push me over when we're when we're playing around. What what all these little things, right? But then it came to the likes. The likes were these were these big things. Yeah, I just love the way you show up in the world type things. So what I realized that that over time, what comes to the forefront of our mind are all these little gritty things that are actually nonsensical that cause the dislikes, right? Mm. When we look through the lens of the likes, they just evaporate, right? And so this is, it's almost like a, this is what we do as humans, right? In creating dislikes about people, we we create all these, all these small things that are actually very small, right? But when we actually list the likes, the likes overwhelm the smalls, you know? So after that team performance shot off to a new level. And how long did the whole trip take? It was nine months. Wow! And that somebody had somebody got injured in the got because you cycled. Somebody got hit. That's somebody right, yeah. had an accident. Did they finish? The did anyone? Did all the people finish? Yeah, they did. Yeah, okay. yeah. That was actually Dylan, the 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 Canadian who uh, was the one chosen by the team that, that mm-hmm. got knocked over by and by a truck. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they were so he ended. and two of them got pneumonia and uh, and yes, yeah. Look, you know, the list of sort of scrapes and injuries and bruises and bashes sort of it's pretty long but you know overall they all when we got to the south pole itself it was a a trim you know very exil- obviously a massively exhilarating experience very very powerful because you you cycled along with them the whole trip yeah yeah i actually i had to fundraise intermittently so i would go and so at times i left them that's when they appointed so they chose leaders and i tried various ways of leadership i said okay let's try you know one a day and so I asked them, what leadership style do you want? So they said, well, we all want to be leaders, so let's try one a day. But one a day turned out to be pretty chaotic because some had an, a leaning towards authoritarianism. <laughs> so in their one day, they became super authoritarian. Others became just you choose type approach. And so it was, it was, it was wildly chaotic. The one. So then we switched to one a week and then we ended up going for, they ended up choosing one person, which was again, the Canadian. For most of the rest of the journey. Yeah, because you said through the documentary, the weaker members ended up helping the strongest members, or they're carrying all their stuff for them, and it's pretty emotional. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. As, as, again, the whole idea that we think, you know, our our sort of position in society, our position in the world is static, but it's constantly changing because we're less effective, and in a team then as people become less effective, others need to to step in. Other, and so it became very obvious that dynamic 
in 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 these wild situations, it becomes very obvious that we have to we have to utilize that dynamic. We have to step in, you know, to to take over when when others become weaker, you know. And is there a longer documentary about it, or or only that short one that I saw? No, that, there's actually a two-hour documentary that was filmed by a TV, a Korean TV company. It was played on national TV in Japan and Korea, you know, on prime time, actually. Mm. So it, was, it reached a lot of people. Is it on YouTube so as well? It is. I haven't made it public, so maybe your your input is I'll make it public. I'll put it on. Do you keep, yeah. do you keep in touch with all the, the young adults who are obviously grown up a bit now? Yeah, so actually we've been, because it's 20 years this year, so we've been chatting quite regularly on on Facebook about meeting and just what we've been up to. So we've been having group calls to just share where everybody's at and what they've been up to. And Where are they now? How did that, that must have, what an event in their lives. They've gone on to, to greater things. Yeah, they've, they've all, it's really interesting where they went. One person, Renault from France, went off and, and worked for the United Nations on a global charter and then got involved in environmental economics. You know, Dylan, the Canadian who hadn't finished grade 12, got into a master's program because of his life experience. <laughs> and so so then he's gone off and worked doing environmental work in, in Northern Canada. Jessica's now a pediatrician. And so those are involved in, in you know, environmental education or humanitarian education. Yeah. Yeah. And how many promises for change did you receive in the, at the end of the trip? So... What happened there, we would go into schools. We we had a team back in Canada who were prepping the journey for us. So we'd go into schools along the way and speak to them and then ask, literally ask them to write out promises, right? And so it's funny some of the, the promises that... So I guess a promise can have an emotional element and can have substance, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the promises that, that stands out out of millions of, or thousands of promises we we collected was in a kindergarten in Vancouver, a kid who was struggling with school, et cetera, et cetera, said to the teacher, I want to be kinder to my mum. And the teacher knew the circumstance of the child and how difficult the child was and came to us with tears in her eyes saying, look, I've just had this, just received this promise, right? And so meanwhile, other ones were I'm going to volunteer at the, at the local hospital or for the environmental organization, but it's it's funny that some really touched us hearts because of this, the, the backstory, I guess, to, to what was involved. So we ended up collecting many thousands. And then the United Nations, we connected with an environmental project in there. And so we ended up getting um, 60 something million added to our group from the United Nations. So the United Nations sent us saying, take these videos as well. Mm -hmm. you know? And that was just while we were trekking to the South Pole. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Nine months to do that is when you're stopping in schools as well and doing it overland. It's it's through all that terrain through the through through Central America down through South South America. I mean, that's a that is a long way. A tough. Yes, it was. It was. We what we do? We we never. Well, we had ideas where we would get to, but we never knew. So often we ended up because of time. We'd often end up camping by the you know stopping by the side of the road, sleeping. You know, basically just, we had tents, but often we wouldn't even use the tent. We'd just, just find somewhere we could just crash out on the ground. Or, wow, that's a hardcore trip. And off, yeah, off first thing in the morning, just up and off and get going. Oh. Yeah. I've done cycle touring too, but I, I can't do that. I need a shower because you're so sweaty down there. And uh -huh. you just, I know people that do it, but I couldn't, yeah, just that, you know, that's a tough trip. It's respect to those people that did that. 
Yeah, I was, I was just, they, they did really well. Yeah. They really, and so often it was the, what I mentioned, we did this, you know, brutal honesty session, but then also it was the reminder why we're, why we're doing the journey. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's what kept people going is just the why, the big why, why are we doing this? You know, we're doing this to, to share potential with other people. Yeah. What, what was that? Was that the slogan of the the whole trip? Then share the potential. Actually, the, the slogan was more about small steps make a difference. Each small step, we each small step we does make a difference to help the world <clears throat> become a better place. You know. Okay. Well, we could stop the interview there, and it was still have been great. But I want to get into this to the other thing that originally got me to to talk to you. Mm -hmm. You work with Nithander, is that right? And yes. So how did that? Yeah. How, tell me all about that. How is that? How did that come about? Okay, so been having done these expeditions, I was then looking, okay, well, what's next? And so, and I was running an adventure company. You know, we were you know, flying into Antarctica, so we employed 35 people. And I was in a really good place in life asking what's next. And I went to a meeting. I was off to a meeting, and I was staying with a friend at the time. And they said, I have some information to share with you about the meeting you're going to. I said, uh, okay. So she, this person described to me, the three people I was meeting with in a way that I'd never heard them described. And I said, well, that's amazing. How did you find that? And she said, well, I'm taking his course in psychic abilities. And that just came to me. I thought, oh, wow, it's pretty weird, you know? So I'm interested. So I, I said, okay, I want to check this out. Just using my logic, I want to find out. So uh, line me up with with five people you think are pretty good at this over the next five days, I'll go and see them all, right? So I went to see all these psychics and mystics and whatever, and each one of them gave me some insight and each one of them was, was correct to some degree. So I said, wow, this is an interesting thing. Let me explore more. So that was my start onto this sort of what is spirituality or what is, what are these other realms? And so having started that, when it came across Nityananda, he was saying, there was a website I went to, and he said, I'm not here to prove I am God, I'm here to prove you are God. Oh, wow, that's a pretty bold statement, so let me check him out. And he was coming to Seattle, so I went, I was in Vancouver, drove down to Seattle, went into this weekend course with him, and he started doing meditations. And in the, in the meditations, or in, in fact, more after the meditations, all of a sudden, my awareness moved to a whole new level. So in one example is that he didn't want meditation, but he said, now go and have some food. And as I sat down to eat this food, which is rice and, and something or other, each grain of rice, I got a whole dimensionality to it, a whole experience of just, you know, being super present, right? With this, with this rice. And it's like, wow, I've never had this level of awareness of, of eating, right? Of just being present with a grain of rice. Um, so. So he was explaining in this in this weekend that our human potential is to live in even more joy, and he described it as bliss, right? And so I said, "Well, it's pretty neat. I'm very interested." So on the Sunday night, the energy, his presence was emitting, from my perspective, so much energy that people were just in an ecstatic state. And so the course was, you know, two eighteen-hour days, and so Sunday night at four o'clock in the morning, everybody was just dancing away. Nobody was tired. It was like, this is a whole new experience for me in terms of, of human performance. And so the next morning he said, okay, I'm going to initiate you into a healing practice. And so come and meet me. So I went to meet him and he said, okay, I'm going to open an energy center in your body that will, that over the next 
hours will 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 cause you to fall into into blitz into joy and i said well sounds great to me so let's go so i got this initiation and then i was driving back to vancouver left the room was walking back to my car and all of a sudden these the overwhelming feelings of joy came up and I started to laugh, fell to the ground, literally fell on the ground laughing, <laughs> right? And then so this, this is a, this is a weird experience. You, before this, you were not into psychics or anything. You were pretty, were you a skeptical person or how would you? Yeah, so I'd, I guess I'd rejected Christianity in, in school in England, right? And so I looked at, at life through the perspective of geological time. It's a, we're a grain of sand in geological time. And so what... What, what I do really doesn't have any effect on anything. And so let me just have an effect on me, which is just live my life from curiosity and, and enjoy life. Mm. You know? so, but then in this process, as soon as I started to discover about psychics, then other worlds, you know, I saw Christianity through a different lens. I saw, I saw all religions through a different lens once I started down this path. Mm. So I saw that, that we have the, the societal conditioning or the I guess I'd responded to the societal conditioning that often comes with, with religions. You must do this, you must eat. In, when I was in, in school, Catholics ate and fish on Fridays. And it like, what's all that about? And so, so part of my rebellion was just against rules. And the leadership, right? yeah. But then as I started, yeah, as I started to delve deeper, I realized that these were, were traditions that, that transcended rules or that all these all these traditions transcend transcend logic in many ways, you know. Yeah. So what happened when you you were driving back to Vancouver? So driving back to Vancouver, it's it's a big freeway, I five, and every fifteen minutes or so, these giggles would arise in me. I have to pull up the road <laughs> and stop and laugh for a few minutes, and then get back on the road. It's, da it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. It's it's basically it's now it's now sort of. My life is that way. I just, I see life through the lens of, of, of humor and, and laughter and love, you know? So it didn't wear off? No, no, it didn't. No, it's, it, what I, from my perspective, it's, it's in everybody, right? So we all have the space we can reside in. And, but, but I see that our, our access to it is, is limited by various factors in life, how we are brought up, what life experiences we have, how we view the world is often connects us from that space, right? And so having had that experience, it took me probably a year or two before I realized, oh, wow, this is actually there all the time, you know, and I'm just not, I'm just not connecting with it all the time. Yeah. I guess after an experience like that, that's enough to convince anyone, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So, so what happened next then? Yeah. So then, so again, we're getting into pretty mystical stuff here. I hope you're okay with that. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so during that course, I had the idea, wow, this guy is amazing. How about if he, would, would he be interested in coming to Vancouver? Mm. Right. Cause I have a bunch of buddies and they would be interested. And so on the next break, somebody said, you yeah, know, would you consider going to other place in the world? And he said, yeah, Vancouver, who's here, who is here from Vancouver? And so he named Vancouver. And so I put up my hand and he looked at, he looked right at me and to the two people from Vancouver sitting right next to me said, okay, I'll come to Vancouver. So, so I had the thought and then this happened, right? So, so I arranged for him to come to come to Vancouver and do a course. And again, I saw the same phenomenon of, of just people over the weekend of intense meditations, really, really getting big realizations. Right. And so, so then I went off to India and, and in India, 
So how to describe this? It's a bit hard. I don't know. There's so many stories flowing, you know, bubbling up. I don't know how to do. When I, when I researched so India, him, there was some controversy. He says controversial. Because how, how old is he? That's how old right, yeah. was he when he came to you? Now he's, when you met him? Um, he was 27. When a he young met, man, yeah. Right? In yeah, this yeah, time. That's right. Yes, exactly. Yes. And, and so, you know, I was amazed that, he, that, that this young man could have so much intelligence, intensity, and space. I really see now as a space to, to influence other people. So maybe that's where I'll take it up for what's just one second in terms of, so in terms of this whole idea of space, we did a bunch of research with him. And so we used brain researchers came in and, and did work with him and that sort of stuff. And so what we discovered was that he, he had the ability to, to utilize certain parts of his brain at will. And so in the researchers, the researchers were touching his skull various places and he would say, okay, I can activate that bit. I can activate this, things like that. And then we also, we also wired up people who are remote, you know, who are, so we wired up people who are in San Jose and he was in India and he came on a two way, just like we're doing now, he came on two way and so, okay, now I'm sending you energy, I'm blessing you. And their brain waves went from alpha to delta, which is, you know, typically associated with deep yeah. sleep but they were wide awake. And so it really is, we saw, we, we demonstrate his, the, not just his ability, but the ability to transmit synchronous, synchronous brain waves over huge distances. So yeah. you're, you're really, you're all in by this stage. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I'm now also saying, oh, wow, this is amazing. No? See, you're and, starting to devote a lot of energy and time and to develop in this. That's right. Yeah. So I actually, so I eventually became an ashram. I staying in the ashram for, for about, in and out for about seven years, seven or eight years, you know, in, in India, in India, that's right. Yeah. And then he would send me other, other places around the world to teach meditation and then come back, you know, things like that. So you gave up your business or you got someone else to run it and you do this full time? Yes. I just, yeah. Yeah. I just gave up and became full time. Right? Okay. Wow. Yeah. After an experience like that, because nothing, nothing in a book or anything can convince anyone only what what you see when you hear with your own eyes, really. So that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of experience did you have in these seven years? Your wife on the, in the video chat said some pretty, he was giving darshan to people, which is, which like giving them an energy. Is that, how does that work? Yeah. So, so what he, he describes himself and, and said other, other saints, they, they're basically a conduit for divine energy, cosmic energy, whatever you want to call it. There's a bunch of names you can use. And so, so then that energy is transferred just by being in the presence or through, through touching. So one of the, the things that I saw time and again was that people would, you know, have a whole long list of questions for him about life. Should he get married? Should he get this job? 20 questions about life. And then they'd go into his presence and go toward and just come close to him. And he'd say, what do you want to, you know, what's your question? And they'd go blank. Literally, so so these these enlightened masters or beings are emitting an energy that is so calming that it literally calms our nervous system down, so that things that are meaningful in the moment all of a sudden become meaningless. <laughs> so all of life's travails and difficulties can fade away. Literally, that's what I that's literally what I saw. But then he he also said he was saying that around he was saying to us around me things happen that I don't have any conscious uh, knowledge of. He said, so energy is expressed through me. 
So, so one day we were sitting, a group of us were sitting by a pool on some granite steps and he was uh, sitting out on the water on a little platform and he was speaking and he'd been saying to us, I feel like an energy moving through me is going to awaken people's Kundalini or get people moving. So he was talking and just did a hand gesture, just rolling his hand. And all of a sudden, one of the people he was looking at all of a sudden started to bounce up and down. And then they fell headfirst in the water. <laughs> and then he looked, he looked at his hand, looked at the next person, and then did the same hand gesture. And they bobbed up and down and fell in the water, right? So there's 20 of us sitting on this row, and he just went down the row moving, looking at people, moving his hand, right? And uh. so then we went and did some research. We went online and and it turns out that but let's just pick let's just picture this because this is a movie scene though so there's people bounce up and down they fall in the water one and one by one yeah you were one of these people you <laughs> you, you fell in the... <laughs> no actually I'm, I'm standing to the side observing this right? and what did they feel afterwards I, did, I, they, I my... did they have an enlightenment after were they did they was their consciousness raised forever after this no no they were so so what he what he said though he said that okay, I can see this energy moving through me that wants to, to be transferred to other people. So we went on, online and realized there's a concept called yogic flying, which if you Google it, you'll find all that enlightened masters have, have had similar experiences of, of transferring energy through this. And so, so then there was a whole, a whole period where people who came into his presence would automatically start to jump up and down you know, and vibrate and, yeah, and literally, you know, literally bounce around, you know? And it became so wild that in some meditations, we would have to, the group who were helping organize, we would we'd get mattresses and, and put sick mattresses around somebody who would be, who would be bouncing up and down so they wouldn't get hurt. Wow. It was really, and so in the, in the brain research though, the researchers said, okay, these people who are bouncing, they're going into Delta, but also people who are not bouncing are also going into Delta too. So it's like his presence was shifting everybody into, into a different frequency. And for some people it would stay longer and other people it would, it would, it would diminish. Mm. And the same, the same with healing too. We saw that, for instance, many people would come to him for healing and some, some would be healed, some, some would not. And, but over a 10 day period, say in a 20 day course, often on day 10 of a course, he would say, who here has an allergy? And so a bunch of people, typically in a, in a group of, of a few hundred people, would be 10 people. You'd say, okay, what's your allergy? Peanuts, um, milk. Go to the kitchen and get that object and come. So they go to the kitchen, come back, and he'd, he'd bless them and say, okay, now take the peanuts, take the milk. And out of 10 out of 10, typically the, everybody would be allergy-free, right? But then on return to life, sometimes that allergy was gone permanently. Other times it would... It would it would reoccur, you know, and so what I see there is that we all have the ability to to free ourselves of various chains or shackles, whatever you want to call them. We also have the ability to 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 create them, to step back into them, and the mind has that ability to find to find fault, to find to to grasp onto things that cause us to to re what would be the word to to reengage in life as it was. You know? Okay, yeah, he sounds like a, a power a power station. Just emitting tons of you know, prana, but yes. from what I've read from other masters is that they have to learn to control this. They they shouldn't be a, like Doctor King, for example. He, they should be able to just have power of this as will. Will did 
didn't if you know, not have this ability to to control it at all times so how he would describe it because i read for instance what dr king would say and what other masses have said about this so there's so from from nichanamna's perspective this isn't just an energy that expresses right it's it's almost like a natural state and so we don't have to lose it so we can these these powers we can seek and we can do yogic practices to get them or they can they can occur spontaneously naturally mm. and so you know it's if it's our natural state then it's just our natural state you know and, and so for him he's saying look it's it's our natural state so let's just enjoy our natural state that's 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 how he would and did he so he, he had a spontaneous that. awakening or he did yogic practices as a young man in this life so again he he grew up in a in a small a sacred town in india where there's lots of lots of masters and so he described in his childhood about 10 different masters in the town male and female who had various abilities or had various ways of helping people mm. you know so there was a yoga master for instance who was in in his early hundreds who you know, had the ability and other people have of because i've been to that town i've checked with other people had the ability to to help young people levitate right and so and so they would practice levitation and so there's a so i guess to answer the question about is it a skill or is it a space it seems like it's in order to to fall into the space you need to practice moving into a mindless state right and so yeah does that does that answer the question so clarify that i guess with this is a long conversation but i know some masters they have to put their yeah. hand over their solar plexus chakras to stop energy being emitted and some the higher you go you can you can just you can hurt people lower than you with just too much energy so mm. it's definitely something you have to learn to control i think that's yeah and i or learn to utilize to good effect i guess really is the my interpretation or that would be so yeah so, so continue with your so after seven years of having a pretty mm -hmm. mind-blowing experiences what what happened next so yeah, what happened next is that I was I was traveling around the world, you know, teaching, teaching meditations. And so in Los Angeles I had I taught a group of, of, of students here. And so now one of the students, Maria, my wife, is now a teacher and, and is teaching the meditation group. So when it came to Vancouver when it came to Los Angeles, I would come in in uh, to her to her group and meditate with the group. And so but every time I was in her presence, my consciousness would raise. I could feel a shift in my consciousness. Again, this may sound a bit bizarre, but I would go into the temple and there's various deities in the temple, Krishna and Rama and Ganesh. And so when I'd go into the temple, these, these deities, I could actually have conversations with them. And then at other times I couldn't, right? And so when I came into the presence of Maria, all of a sudden I would I would have this this increased awareness, increased consciousness. And so one day we decided to go for a walk, and and uh, we went off hiking in the mountains. Within half an hour, all of a sudden we both had this experience of wow, we are meant to be together. And so basically, in in, in a half hour walk in the hills, it became clear to both to us, both of us, that we were meant to be together. And so then it was a case of okay. Now this is my new direction, right? And so, so away I go. <laughs> Love to a new level. Mm. Okay, so you you decided to come well, to Los Angeles, or she was she is she already was she a disciple of? Uh, yes, she was. Yes, okay. yeah, yeah. So then, 
So, so I was in Los Angeles. So Maria works here as a, as a, as a concert pianist and as a musician. So then it was okay. Well, so this is my, this, this is my new path. Um, basically I have, I have nothing. And so let me just start, start from, start all over again. You've had some life, mm -hmm. Martin, I tell you. Okay. Keep going. You're on a roll now. Oh, okay. So, so then it was, okay, so what's next? And so at that point I thought I, I had been doing coaching and doing obviously guiding and, 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 and doing public speaking around adventure and, and human performance. And so, so then it was back into the realm of what is optimal human performance. And so taking all, all my experience with, with the adventure side of, of life and, and seeking human performance there with. Now there's all this information from an, an experience with, with, I call them swamiji about what our human potential is I'm blending them together. So, so now that's, that's what I'm doing now. I, I'm, I coach a few different individuals and companies on, on what is human performance and what is ultimate human performance. Okay. Yeah. Are you still involved with Nithya? I am. Yes. Yeah. And so I still um, go and I go to the temple and, and do, do some of the rituals. So my. Again, this bizarre connection with deity still still exists for me, which is it feels bizarre, but still, I, it's just a calling. I just I can't I can't explain it logically, but there's a calling. And just for a, for a few minutes on that, for some reason, Swamiji asked me to move a lot of the deities and install a lot of the deities, and so, and this is where I saw this is more than again we're back into the mystical realm of of what happens. So. One of my first experiences was we were asked to pick up a Ganesh from a warehouse and it was the, the Ganesh weighed four and a half thousand pounds was in a huge crate. And so a forklift driver picked it up, broke it, brought it over to the, the truck. There was two of us there and Swamiji was there and he started to put it in the truck, but it wouldn't fit. I was in the truck and I could see that the crate was four inches too big, right? And so we put it down on the ground and shouted, Swamiji, Ganesh is too big to go in the truck. And he, he said, no, he isn't. So he came back around and, and he said, okay, try again. And the forklift driver says, well, we just tried, but didn't fit. So no, no, try again. So the forklift driver, okay, I'll show you type thing. Up comes the forklift and Swamiji goes in Ganesh and, and it fits perfectly. So within one movement of his, of his hand, the Ganesh fitted in the trunk. And so after that, I saw similar things many, many times, probably, you know, 200 times I saw similar things. Another time we were moving another Ganesh, which was made out of, out of metal, quite heavy, five guys trying to lift it and, and we couldn't quite lift it. It was awkward to get five people around this thing. Right. And so we said, let's get two poles and we'll rig up a system so we can hold it further away and lift it because we had to put it on the table. So the, the guys went to get some poles and I was there. Swamiji walked in the room and said, oh, let's move Ganesh. I said, well, I've just sent the guys to get poles so we can move it. He said, no, 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 these, these ladies here will do. So the, there were three ladies who are polishing another deity. And he said, come on over. So, so they sort of, you know, all sort of flustered. He said, come on over here. And so they came over. So now it's three, three ladies, myself. And, and he comes over and says, okay, puts his hand, okay, okay lift. So we all lived, it's super heavy, but we all, and up comes the deity and on the table. And, um, so he says, okay, so he's walking away and the four guys come back 
and they look and see the deity on the table, I just sort of point at Swamiji and saying, <laughs> as he just, he, he's casually walking away. Mm -hmm. And so, so I saw this ability to manipulate matter, manipulate all sorts of things time and again. Yeah. I guess you... another example would. Please go on. Yeah. No, this is. Uh, I'm on a bit of a roll here. So, another example was that we were in the Himalayas going to Mount Kailash and 60 people traveling by, by Toyota Land Cruiser overland to Mount Kailash. We come over a pass and the drivers say, Mount Kailash is visible from this pass. It's about 20 miles away, but this cloud, we can't see it because it's in the cloud. So, we stop all the vehicles and Mount Kailash is very sacred in the Hindu tradition. And so Swamiji says, okay, I'll, I'll get the clouds to move. And so he then invokes, you know, Shiva and says, Shiva, please make Kailash appears to us. And then says to us, okay, it'll, it'll, it'll appear in about 15 minutes. We're at about 16,000 feet. And I think the peak is like 22. So about a, you know, a 4,000, 6,000 foot difference. And there's clouds all around us, right? And the cloud ceiling is a thousand feet and I'm a mountaineer and I know these things weather, right? And there's no way this is going to change that rapidly. But then 15 minutes, we start seeing a break just over where the, the Tibetan guide see Mount Kailash is. 18 minutes, the peak starts to appear. 20 minutes, then the peak is totally clear. And then we went back the same, the same thing the next year, went back again, same thing, same place, the weather's bad. And again, he says, okay, I'll, I'll call and ask for us to see Mount Kailash. So... So anyway, I have a whole litany of, of these sort of wives. So how, how, so he had, from my, my research, there was, he had some controversy in India. There was some allegations. Do you know anything about that? It's yeah. So I was there when, when the whole controversy broke. And so he was, he was accused of, of rape, right? And he was accused of, of, yeah, he was accused of rape. And there was a video released by um, a big TV company of him clothed but in bed with, with a very famous uh, film star, right? Female film star. She's, she's a devotee of his, right? And so I knew her, she would come regularly to the ashram and, and she was, she was making videos on yoga and this sort of stuff, right? She was, she was really close to the senior, the senior group who were running everything. So when this, so when this controversy broke, he was accused of rape, but the, nobody was named in the rape, right? And so, but the inference was that he had raped her, right? And, but the video didn't show that. The video showed them lying clothed on the bed. And so it, it seems like what had happened is that his popularity was increasing, increasing. And in South, this is my version of the story, right? So we all have different versions of things. So in South India, the, the government in control is, is an atheist government. At that time, it was an atheist government. And they saw his rise in popularity because well, 10,000 people would come out to an event he was running, right? So he would fill football stadiums with, with crowds of people wanting to, to hear him speak. And so, so from my perspective, this was an attempt to discredit him basically. Mm. And so the video was produced, this rape charge went out, there was nobody named in the rape charge, but then, so he went into hiding and, and for us, the Westerners who were there at the time, it, it appeared, the whole thing appeared almost funny. It was just. This is nonsensical. We didn't quite understand it. The, the videos didn't make sense. Nothing made sense, but the media blew it up. And literally people came to the ashram and were, were the, um, very, very angry about his, his breaking of these traditional rules. But also what we saw 
we saw that there was a media manipulation going on. So for instance, there was the morning of the event, all of a sudden we saw smoke coming out of one of the buildings. And so we went over there and it was a thatched roof and uh, Molotov cocktails had been thrown over the wall of the fence onto the building. The building was in fire. And we knew the building just had had a few papers in and of no use. But then three hours later, photographs of the building go on the media saying records are being burnt and hidden because of the scandal. They're now hiding the records, right? So, so we knew that, that there was a media manipulation going on. For instance, that same day, hundreds of videos of this appeared on YouTube, and we checked on how that had happened. And it seems like it would take a whole crew of people working uploading videos to multiple new channels, to multiple, you know, to, to get that sort of extensive coverage. So there was a, there was a mastermind behind it mm. and whether that was malicious, you can look at this was malicious or this was just, there was truth to the whole story. But from my perspective, it was all malicious. Mm. Mm. Was there any sexual aspects mm. to the ashram? Because I know Osho, Osho is very famous in the West for his, I've seen that Netflix documentary, which was also pretty disturbing as was there, was there anything like that in the ashram? No, there was, again, he was highly experimental, right? So times often say things like, for the next few weeks, I want the women not to speak to men. You know, he was, he was quite um, rigid in the division you know, of, of males to females and how we related with each other, you know? So he was very traditional in that respect, mm. you know? Okay. Yeah. So did, he had, you know, he referred to Osho and, and spoke highly of Osho, but and recommended we read many of his books, but but said in 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 the tradition we view things like that differently. Traditionally, we we have our roles. We have different roles in society. The male males and females have different roles in society. Was Osho an enlightened master, yeah. or do you ever know that? From my perspective, having studied, I would say yeah, I would say I would call him an enlightened master. Yes, because yeah. I saw him in that Netflix documentary and. He didn't seem like a very nice guy, some of the things he said. So I think with whether it's Zen masters or or any master, often they can be harsh, you know. So I've seen Nityananda be very harsh to people. And often what he says, he's saying, nobody else will tell you the truth. Everybody else is goody goody around you. And I'm the only one who can share with I'm the only one who can help wake you up to reveal what's important, what's ultimately important to you. Okay. So, but I've seen him be very harsh with people. I guess, Dr. And if you look at the, the Zen approach, it's also can be very harsh too, right? I guess Dr. King said that he, he met many enlightened masters, but he get to meet a saint. <laughs> Still people, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And so now, now yes. Nithyananda leaves, he lives off, he left India and he lives off the coast on an island. Is it Madagat? Where is it? I'm off Australia. Oh, it's off Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Have you have you so been again? There? No, I haven't. No. So the controversy there is that literally he was he ended up leaving the country because of of attempts on his life. Mm. He said this because at the ashram, when I was there one time when the gates were stormed by villagers who had been riled up by the media, and literally people were climbing over the gates with with big sticks and beating, literally beating ashramites. You know, I guess it's more of a and danger so, for them than for him. I guess he's so he's for his for the yes. safety of the of the ashram. He probably had to disband it. Now, that's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and he's he's still a young man though. I mean, he's still 
how old is he now? He's still. So he's now 40. 40. Young. Mm, yes. Yeah. And what is his, he's trying to start a, a new nation. Is that right? Yeah. So, so what's happening there is that he's saying that as Hinduism and so from his perspective, Hinduism has its roots way back in, in ancient scriptures. And so there's been a transmission of these ancient scriptures down through the ages from 5,000 years, even a lot longer into, into modern day Hinduism. And so, and you have all these scriptures, but then you have Hinduism interfacing with, with society. And as you know, in, in traditional villages, there would have been a, a master in each village. You could call it a sage or a, a wise person in each village who would arrange marriages, help, you know, educate all these sorts of the things. Brahman. And then that, yeah, when, then when the British came in, they introduced another form of education, which is much more intellectual. And so he is saying that these traditional ways of learning, which were learning through transmission of energy are ultimately where we need to go is for humanity. Humanity needs to go that direct. And so as, as Hinduism, you know, moves more and more into the realm of logic and, and gods become, gods are real for some people, mythological for others, you know, so the teachings of, of Krishna are real for some people, mythological, or just, just outrageous for other people, right? So you have this realm of, of understanding or connection, right? And so he's saying that in order to get back to being in, in, in the flow of, of these are real, these, this energy is real, our abilities to move things, to understand, to connect with nature, we need to, we need to form a nation that, that that, that exemplifies this. And so he's doing that on an island now. That's right, yes. Okay. Yeah. Did you ever wonder if you and so, if you got his powers and you could you could decide what to do with your mission in this life, it would be a big difficult thing to to know what to do, wouldn't it? It would, yes. As I've I've explored for myself what is what is human potential and how do we alter the world? How do because obviously pole to pole was the same thing, right? How do I with, with my gifts, how do I contribute to the to the future of humanity and i've been on i've been the president president of environmental organizations i've done all sorts of things like that and where i look from my perspective our future the the heartfelt connection is is an imperative almost a heartfelt connection with nature a heartfelt connection with other people and the divine or my version of the divine falls in tune with that when we are heartfelt then we are connected with everything. We are, we're, so whether you call it oneness or, so from my practical perspective, often it boils down to just um, a feeling of heartfelt connection yeah. with everything. You know? But the more you, pa and from, you know, the more power you have, the more your responsibility. People were our level, kind of, or maybe you, in knocking mm -hmm. around here, we can, what we, is we have these small, small impacts we can do, but for someone like, someone who's reached that level, it's, that's a lot more responsibility, no? Mm, yes. Yeah. Massive responsibility. And he says, I spend every waking, every waking moment, um, pursuing that, you know? So it's, I know I've, as, as he has pursued it, I've looked, well, why would you go that way? Why not go this way? You're using my own logic. Mm. Right. But again, I'm really, and so I keep falling into the trap of using my own logic to try to figure out something that's illogical. <laughs> he has a better view up there. So that's right. Yes. That's what I keep seeing is that I still keep falling from my own logic. So, so can people go to, to visit him? Is he welcoming visitors or not yet? No, he's saying that 
I'm still building, I'm still building the structure to, to welcome people mm. because again, the threats to his life have been, you know, real and, and, uh, yeah, so he's still building that, you know? And how do you think the Australian government's going to, I've seen the Netflix series, what Oshu tried to do and mm-hmm. it went really bad. I, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, but they, they became heavily armed. They poisoned the neighbors. They were, mm-hmm. they were not nice. That's right, they were yes. not nice people. So yeah. It's yeah, not it's yeah. not going to take much for anyone, for any government to, to want to take him down. You know what I mean? Yes, and no. What from from the space of, of, of sort of empty, empty and meaningless, all sorts of distortions can happen. So that's my perspective on on the whole Osho thing is that some of the devotees it became okay for them to do these things because from a space of of oneness, these possibilities exist, and but we have to. So Swamiji's spoken about this too, and saying, you know, we have to be super cautious and super vigilant to 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 not divert from from the path of what is good for all. So he's he's very much aware of that, and very much aware of, of the Osho phenomenon and how. And so even within the organization, what will happen is that somebody will become a teacher or an acharya, and then start their own little group and then sort of start and then ego will come in and all of a sudden that fit that person will start feeling more power and et cetera, et cetera. And so I've seen this happen probably 30 or 40 times within even within the Nichananda organization. Right. Closer to the group, so, get more power. Yes. And then go off and start your own thing or think you can do it on your own or whatever. So and so within sometimes within the organization, sometimes outside the organization. And so and I've seen him regularly say to people Actually, it's time for you to stop teaching for a while. You know, go to go to this remote remote location in India for six months and practice this specific practice. So I've seen him pull people out of senior roles and be sent off to really just recalibrate. What a shit job to be a master and have to deal with ordinary people, though. That would be such a <laughs> actually, pisser. Actually, he, he does describe <laughs> he he does describe it. He says, you know, you it, 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 in speaking colloquially with his senior disciples, you know. He describes us as you idiots, you know? It would be like being in charge of a kindergarten teacher in charge, but 10 times worse. So one little story there is that the ashram has now got, or had at that point in time, children who were, were the, their parents were devotees, so he started a whole school, right? And so at one point he said to all of us, and I was one of the senior people at this time, I want you to match up with, with one of the children and they, you, you have to report to them every day. Tell them what you're doing and why. And so he said, because they will give you wisdom. So I was chatting with one of the most senior people who was come, came to me and said, my little Gurukul student just tore a strip off me and gave me total insights. And this guy has got quite an ego. And uh-huh. he'd gone to this, you know, this, this 10-year-old, and the 10-year-old had said, look, you're, you're functioning from ego on this thing. Because I think what he said, it's a, how do you make decisions? That's the 10 year old asked, how do you make decisions? And he said, well, I, I listen to the group and then I decide. And so, so the 10 year old said, oh, so your ego runs the show. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so that's the topsy turvy nature of being around these, these enlightened masters. You, you can look at that through any number of lenses, right? And say, what well, who would want to do that? But, but from the perspective of that that senior disciple in that moment, that was 
that was ground earth shifting for them because they had their patent, yeah. right? They were smart. They were just they just ran things that way. You know? As if this conversation couldn't get any weirder, I want to ask you about the Ethereum Society and how you you came into that. Ah, because we're in the same spiritual organization. So what happened there is that Swamiji had been speaking about blessing the world. And so he said that he was saying, you know, one of the spiritual practices to do is every moment just be blessing everything. So just make that as a spiritual practice. And so he said, start with one hour, start with two hours. So, so, so I started, started doing that. As, you know, is, as, is that with, with, with gratitude or saying a prayer or how does that, how does that go? Just really just radiating blessings to, so, you know, so literally just think I'm blessing the world almost, you know, there's a very. Or concentrate on individual things like now this glass, now this um, microphone. No, no, everything actually just, yeah, just, you can do it individually or collectively. So just okay. literally just, I'm. I'm blessing the world, right? And so he spoke about, then you can do it individually. So you're driving, bless the cars around you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I started doing that more and more, and that, that really resonated with me. And so even in, in the pursuit of you know, what is my best contribution to the world, having been the president of environmental societies, I know I can write letters, I can, I can fight, I can do all these sorts of things, but in some for me, what resonates most profoundly in my inner space is just this aspect of just blessing the world, you know? So really, that feels like what my calling is fundamentally, you know? And, and then from that, from that space, things happen, actions happen, right? And so, so when it came across the Ethereum Society, it was actually my wife, Maria, who, who really caught on to the organization at first. And so... So I would listen to Dr. King and, and, and look at his teachings, see how they fitted in with, with what, what I discovered in Swamiji's world. And so I, I saw that the aspect of blessing the world of the Ethereum Society is, is one of the foundational aspects of the Ethereum Society. It's, it's a bit different in that it's done with almost, I would call it like a, a yogic or with a chi. If you take all the martial arts and combine elements of them, the Ethereum Society is using elements of those martial arts to, to radiate, right? And so it's, you know, having even say with Swamiji, we would, we would, we would get videos of, of uh, Qigong masters who are able to direct energy and manipulate people's bodies, manipulate movement and things like that. And we saw the correlation between Swamiji just this energy flowing through him, other, other people playing with this energy and directing it. And then in the Ethereum society, I saw the whole, whole there was the society was doing something very similar of gathering energy and sending it out in a, in a, in a, in a very systematic way and in a way that, that, that expanded potential because at the, at the end of these 12 blessings, it's about you know, again, back to, it ends up being, from my perspective, being black, back to blessing everything, you know, back to, mm. to, so we start off being very specific and end up being blessing everything. And, and every time, especially getting to that, that last blessing, I would feel the same Kundalini awakening, the same movements, same experience in my, in my inner space that, that I would have in connecting with Swamiji, say, for instance. So. So I see the space of oneness 
we can get there a bunch of ways. There's a correlation, there's an, an interface between between these ways of getting there. And also the operations with putting the putting the, the, the energy into the batteries, into these cr batteries filled with crystals mm -hmm. and discharge and sending them out, discharging them in psychic centers of the earth or radi radiating them out to specific crisis points. That's right, uh, yes. I, I, again, I see the, that there's a whole realm that, of possibilities and actions that, that most people are not really aware of or in tune with, that beings with a high level of consciousness can see, can observe, and for them it's systems, and for them it's structures, and, and so they're imparting to us, here's some possibilities, here's some, some ways of helping the world, you know? Because yeah. we always think we're ingrained in the practical material mindset that if I'm going to help the world, I need to do it with my time or my money or something. But a yogi can stop a huge tornado or a hurricane, massive hurricane, by calling in the diva, mm -hmm. giving them the energy they need, a just transfer of energy. Mm -hmm. And then you try and stop a, a hurricane with a anything material, mm -hmm. just as an example it's impossible so it's even more it's, it's so much more powerful but we when i think i'm going to do something useful i i i, I really cannot convince myself to this praying is going to work because mm -hmm. i think of praying as i'm asking someone else to do but i don't think that i don't see myself as a channel sending out energy enough as i should mm -hmm. like that you can really but well, yes it's and i see that the the practice the more we with anything, the more we practice it, the more we feel, then it becomes a life experience, right? So then, oh, I have this experience, so now I know the value. So it's, how do we... But, but has, that, we... has that changed in your life? If, if you had an accident, if there was some, you knew someone was... Do you, is your first port of call, do you go now to, to the 12 blessings or something like that, rather than first a materialistic assistance? Depends on the circumstance. <laughs> but often I find I'm just... My immediate response is to call in energy. Often, you know, is to is to call in assistance. Oh, so you um, reached that level, yeah. And yeah, often that's my first response. Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to get there. And often my hands just my hands go out of almost automatically. You know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just uh, as soon as there's a catastrophe, I'm like this. Yeah. 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 You see, I know that, but I don't. I haven't. I haven't had the same experiences that you have. So my conscious mind has not been. Mm -hmm trained in that way so mm -hmm. also i'm finding because i spent a lot of time in nature i'm finding that when i'm when i'm out in nature and walking it becomes very easy to bless the world there because our minds can go all sorts of places when we have say two hours walking on a trail and so i first started doing this on you know on expeditions i started realizing okay the mind can do a couple i approach very logically the mind can do a few things either i can go into complaint the weather's bad, my feet are cold, da, da. in which case my performance actually, and noticing what happens, my performance drops off, right? Literally, I'm draining away. So you bring everything back into this to this performance aspect. You're, you're focused on that. That's right, yes. yes. That's funny. And then, yeah, yeah, very practical. That's right, yes. Yeah. And for me, even, I think it's so funny to say with Swamiji, the fact they had me moving so de so many deities, I think because I am practical, that landed with me. These deities, he could also he could change the size of them, change the weight of them, all that sort of stuff. So literally, we had measurements. We we measured doors. The, the deity won't fit through this door, right? 
we go back to him three times and say, look, it won't fit through. We have to knock the wall down. And you say, no, 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 it will. We come to the day and it goes through, right? So things like that. So my very practical nature of things tends to boil things down to, okay, what is my direct experience of this? I can only imagine if I'd have spoken to you at different times in this journey, you'd have been a lot more animated, I guess. You'd have been a lot more amazed than you are now. Now it's kind of, oh yeah, Ganesh changed size again. Yes. At the time, on the in your on the early steps of your journey, it must have been a mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because we literally we did get this, we did get um, complacent about it. But but oh yeah. But I think though, you see, ultimately though, that's what he wants us to do is to become. Oh, this is normal, you know. So mm -hmm. because then, just as you say, then it's normal for my hands to do this, right? So it's, it's now normal for me to bless people when there's an accident. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. It's like you say, there's these, 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 or people say there's these veils over our, our the light bulb mm -hmm. you know, and we just have to peel them off. We have our psychic senses and our physical senses and we've limited ourselves. We, we are dis disabled mm. in a disabled state. That, yeah. And it's, sorry, just on that note, just even for instance, on Everest, what I see there is that when I, when I went there, I was feeling really fit and strong. I was one of my fellow guides was considered the best climber in the world at that time. And so we were racing, you know, we were racing up hills on the way in. We were feeling really good about ourselves, right? And we get to the base of the mountain, the Sherpas appear and great. Hey, how are you doing? Let's head up. So we each grab a load and uh, the Sherpas grab a load too. We say, how much are you carrying? Oh, well, we'll carry that. We start off and it's like, oh. Oh no, these guys are outpacing us. And so it was like on Everest, what I saw is that the Westerners, we, the Westerners come back with all these accolades about success, et cetera, et cetera. But really it's almost like we are, we're disabled in comparison to the Sherpas. You know, we're nowhere near the, the functionality in those high elevations as the Sherpas, even really good climbers, you know? So mm -hmm. it's the same. The same parallel, I guess, you know? Yeah. So did you, have you spoke to Nithya Yananda about the Ethereum Society? I don't know, don't think I have, no. Maria has mentioned it, but so it's because he, he's not so, he's not so accessible. So I, I haven't, have I spoken to him recently? No, I haven't spoken to him in, in a little while. He's referred to me he's, he's spoken about me to other people and things like that and sent messages for, can you help with this? And, but I. I haven't communicated with because that would be interesting to know what when I what that what I know someone that was in Rikish, Rishik, Rishikesh mm -hmm. a teacher there told them that the 12 blessings was, was the most powerful practice currently available to humanity mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you don't expect but at the top they're all probably all talking mm -hmm. yes yeah we've tuned in Murray and myself and both camped that yes the 12 blessings are you know are really powerful you know yeah mm -hmm. and what else what other aspects of the Ethereum society because with this podcast, and that's my, I've made it my mission to serve through, I'm trying to raise awareness of the Ethereum Society through this, by making this a, a successful podcast mm -hmm. and with my music. Oh, I see. Oh, sweet. So where, it's the way that I can reach more cause, people. Cause yeah. you can do, yeah, because I think wisdom is, because with spiritual healing, you can help someone for one life. Mm -hmm. You can get them through a problem. But with, with they say that wisdom is the greatest thing you can give another man mm -hmm. or woman because it goes on to the next life and can help them the karmic behavior for this life so the wisdom that you've given now 
Yeah. I'm sure in this conversation, a lot of people would just be like, that was pretty crazy. <laughs> but maybe some people <laughs> are really going to get inspired and want to learn more. <laughs> and then we all came, we all came to, we all came to something because of a book or a <laughs> podcast That's or, a, yes. or a, no, a lecture, yeah. just, a, just a little thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree totally. So with the wisdom that it's about, yeah. we have to put it out there, don't we? What about when the Ethereum Society that, because when I came across it, it's pretty crazy shit that all the other planets are inhabited and we evolve into uh, the sun, we evolve into the earth, we evolve in, into galaxies eventually. Mm -hmm. And and people like Nithyananda, they're only, they're one turn of the wheel away from us. Mm -hmm. They're met, in, but so, someone on like Saturn mm -hmm. is like 9,000 turns of the wheel. So, and how much more is the sun and how much more? So was it that? Was that pretty crazy for you as well? Uh, I, I approach it from the perspective of, so all of this could be true. And so let me, let me experience it. Let me be open to, to what is being said and, and then let my body respond or be the witness to it, you know? And so, and I do see that I look at it from the, from the perspective of possibility. So what is our possibility as humans? And so this is, this is another realm of possibility, right? And so how do I live into that possibility on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, what does that, does that make me more kind of considered human in the moment? And what I see ultimately there is that, that the, the actions that the, the Ethereum society recommends definitely do make me more, make me a better human, basically. You're such a practical man. <laughs> You're like. You're nuts and bolts all the way, even though you've had all these crazy experiences, you're still, I could tell you're mm -hmm. really a down to earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Isn't it fascinating how we're all so, so different? Yeah. Yes. Because it's, you see, what I see there though, is that we can argue with anything, right? And so, and we love to argue. So, so do I want to spend my time arguing, debating with the, with the Ethereum society about whether it's correct? But if you look at where the information comes from and the state the person was in when the information was delivered, then the, the experience of people around that person, then, oh, wow, this is, this is information that was delivered at a time and place that, that is exceptional and extraordinary, right? And so, mm. so therefore the information, it's worthwhile considering the information very openly because of that. It's having, having been around people who have almost being in trans spaces or, or know that, that what's possible and that information then becomes much more, I guess, you know, credible and, and curious. So then my curiosity is sparked by, by what's coming through. Yeah. yeah. I often use a mountaineering analogy in spiritual, when I'm, when I'm talking about spirituality as well, is that we're, we're climbing this mountain in, in, in a terrible fog mm -hmm. or a storm, which is the way you're like, yeah. and, and the only people the only people we can really communicate with are those, you know, two feet in front of us, mm -hmm. higher up the mountain. There's no good people. People ten meters up are no good to us. They they speak another language. They're they're too advanced for us. Mm -hmm. We can't see them. But it's only people who can come down a couple of feet. Help! Oh, they they've. I know that guy. He got up that. He's gone up there. I'll go up mm -hmm. there and gradually inching our way up this this mountain. Yeah, that's my yeah. Mountain. No, I think it's a walking in a fog. I think is such a great, such a great metaphor because we're all blind to various things that we don't know as well. We can see the fog, but there's a bunch of other blindnesses that we don't see, unfortunately. 
Mm. Well, I could keep, I keep talking to you all day in my time, but I've, I've got to write a song. Okay. So, um, so what are you thinking for the song? Yeah. I don't know. It's what you, it's conscious mind versus because I've written for this. I'm almost up to a hundred now. So, mm. and every time I, I've no, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. You know, mm. I don't. This time, this time, I'm not going to. I don't know how I do it because it's my sweet. Yeah. So I've got no idea, but it will it will come, you know. So magically. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Actually. Yeah. I'm getting shivers. I know it's going to come because I'm getting shivers. Oh God! It's going to be a good one. Then. Yeah. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> All right. Well, if you if you receive it, email it to me. Yeah. Okay. Because sometimes some I receive not so. Good. I'll ask Maria to. Oh, I'll well. ask Maria to join in. We'll we'll be sending you good vibes. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. I hope to hope we can meet up one day. And are you in LA now? Yes. I mean do you still do you go to the headquarters sometimes? We were going until the pandemic. So, pandemic, yeah. okay. So I haven't been in. See so Brian, Brian and Paul. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed them too. We, yeah. I've spoken to them both on the podcast before, and they've both been great guests. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Yeah. They're, I mean, also just the the quality of the people makes a difference to me. So they're they're really very sweet, quality people. You know. Yeah. They are. Yeah. They have just such profound energy. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's really mm -hmm. lovely, lovely people. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. As you are. Okay. Thank you, Martin. <laughs> no, it's very, very <laughs> sweet to meet you. I'm, I'm so, I'm much more used to, to asking questions. I'm, I'm really curious. So, I'd almost prefer to turn tables and interview you. <laughs> no, it's been. It, I think everyone prefers listening to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> you did a great job. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Bye, Martin. Yeah. Goodbye. See you.
receive I'm about to believe Show me how Show me now Cause I'm about to believe Ready to know And perceive Thanks, Martine. You made a believer out of me. Thanks to my musicians, Mauricio Sanicola, Massimino Vozza, and Luigi Falcione, and my researcher, Dori Verbo. If you like the song, you can listen on all the usual streaming channels, or if you want to own it forever, don't get it as an NFT. Get it as an MP3 from podsongs.com for just a dollar. I'd like to finish with an honorary mention to the Aetherius Society, the teachings of which led me to start this project serving the servers, helping those who help others. You can learn more about the society at aetherius.org or listen to my new podcast, The Mystic Cast, which is available at podsongs.com or on this Podsong podcast app, which you're listening to now. Take care, have a great time. See you next week.